0: Hey up then. <laughs> Morning and welcome back. Uh, or it's not welcome back to this talk, because it's the first time we've ever had this talk, but welcome back to the theme talk series. Uh, I'd like to start with a couple of notices, bits and bobs. Really importantly, um, you, you may be aware that Joan Wilkins has been struggling somewhat. She has had quite a good night, she has had some breakfast, she's feeling somewhat better, but she still may go home, just to be sure. Okay? Just so that you know. Think well of her. If she is heading home, send her some support and some love. If she stays, give her a hug. There you go. But we'll think very warmly of her. Okay. Uh, Another health kind of concern is if you find that the sun is dazzling at some point, do let us know if we can twitch curtains and adjust to make you more comfortable. Or feel free, if you don't mind, John, um, wander forward and twitch the curtain yourself. I mean, we're grown-ups, aren't we? Even the young young ones are grown-ups, really. Just haven't made it yet. So please do be comfortable. Make sure of that, and don't sit there suffering. If there's anything you can do or we can do to help, just make sure it's all right. Um, so, this morning, what can I say? You don't often meet a hero. <laughs> <laughs> some time ago in my one of my congregations, sorry, with Macclesfield we did a study course, a book group studying a book called Enough yeah. Eight. and at the end of that time um, the author of that book was coming up to Macclesfield to speak to the Macclesfield Literary and Philosophical Society <laughs> so one thought one had to go along to show willing, uh, so Julie and I enjoyed a pizza, almost of a pizza with John um, and it was a delight, a delight to meet him that night uh, it's been a delight to see him arrive here again today. I'm glad Brighton won for you on the Absolutely. way up. That was cool. Um, so John, having written a book called Enough, has decided he's had enough of that. <laughs> and it's going to talk about something quite different. Um, I'm sure you've all read the, the character profiles that were sent out in the information pack. Yeah, so you know a lot about John. However, just to mention, although he is this high-flying media figure, national journalist and columnist and broadcaster... Um, he's notorious amongst his colleagues for not using a mobile phone. How very convenient of him. <laughs> and he says that he persists with some... I hope this is OK to say... some other lifestyle practices, which may... <laughs> which may also be described as inconvenient in the modern world. He's given the impression he's going to say more about those. I just... my mind is boggling. Um, <laughs> so if Monday's child was fair of face and thank you again Rob then Tuesday's child of course is and with that
1: (laughs) thank you, thank you all thank you particularly Michael for inviting me it's a pleasure for me and a privilege (laughs) and thanks for Rob for yesterday for setting the quality bar so high (laughs) (laughs) endeavour to keep you entertained. But before I do that, I shall light this, our chalice, our flaming chalice, and I light it in remembrance of all those who have given their lives in defence of free thought, free speech, and free faith, so that we can have this summer school in the way that we want it, without fear. And I'd like just to start with a minute's silence so that we can reflect on this gift that we have and perhaps hope or pray or meditate on the fact that this gift might one day, we hope, be shared by everyone all across the planet. Thank you. (coughs) The dictaphone is still working, don't worry. (laughs) And so, to start this address, I'd like to open with a story for children and young adults (coughs) of all ages. And I shall start it in the traditional way. So, if you're all sitting comfortably, then I'll begin. Once upon a time, far away, far across the fields, beyond the mountains, further even than Sheffield or (laughs) Macclesfield, there lay an idyllic spot where everything seemed very easy, and it was called Smugly Valley. (laughs) And what a fun place it was! They had lots of entertainments in Smugly Valley, events. They helped to keep people's minds off of things and help their days every day to be smooth, very smooth. As smooth, indeed, as a lizard wearing silk pyjamas. <laughs> and one of their many entertainments was a festival day. And they had lots of festival days, oh yes. And on those festival days, people could dress up and they could dance and have fun. But this particular festival day was called Rebellious Tuesday. And there was a point to it. (coughs) Rebellious Tuesday commemorated a time long ago. Long, long ago when people stood up and struggled for what they believed was right. But it was so long ago that this happened that pretty much everyone in Smugly Valley had forgotten what the people in the past were rebelling about. But that didn't really matter. Pretty much everyone thought that the point was to keep that old rebel attitude alive by dancing and dressing up and being rebellious. There were, however, a very few people who did remember what Rebellious Tuesday was really about. They were people who still read books and did things like that. But they were all very old now, so they didn't matter. Only there was one exception to that. There was one boy. Or was it a girl? We'll call them Cheryl or something like that. They knew a bit about the original rebellion. And why was that? It was because they still liked to read books. So everyone thought they were a bit odd. And they ignored them. But Joel really did like reading. Books about facts. Books about the past. Books about people's ideas and beliefs. He did it in his spare time. People had quite a lot of spare time in Smugly Valley... They didn't have to work much. They filled their time by entertaining themselves or entertaining each other by showing off. But Joel used to admit to people that he enjoyed in his spare time to go off somewhere quiet and just read. Going off somewhere quiet? People thought that was a bit odd too. But it wasn't as odd as what Joel was really up to. Because Joel had a secret. Quite often, when he was off somewhere quiet, reading, he wasn't reading at all. Oh no. He wasn't really somewhere quiet either. No. He trekked over the towering hills and mountains that surround Smugly Valley. And he went outside. Where nearly everyone else never bothered to go he would go up over the hills and down into Slumley Valley, the valley next door. Now, the people there didn't have much free time, if any. No. Their lives were hard, and they were not very nice. Their water, for example, was not very clean. That's because upriver from them... Was Smugly Valley. The smugglers used to take all the clean water and use it for themselves and then throw it back dirty in the river. <clears throat> they didn't have hardly any power or heating either in Slumly Valley because the people in Smugly Valley used it all. They got all the power out of the river and they turned it into power and heating and they used it for themselves so that they didn't have to work very much and the people in Slumney Valley that that meant they couldn't even afford things like health care to help heal the illnesses that came from having dirty and polluted water but Joel used to come over the big divide to try and help he would bring them all the medicines that he could carry in his bags he would bring books And they were very gratefully received. He helped people to learn how to read in Slumney Valley. And that meant that they could read books that helped them to help themselves. Books about inventing things and curing illnesses. Joel even helped with practical things. He'd climb up on people's roofs and help them to patch them up. So when Joel set off very early in the morning on Rebellion Tuesday he'd actually quite forgotten about the whole festival thing it was a bit busy and when he returned after a hard day's helping he looked around and he'd noticed what he'd been missing there were people there wearing Mohican wigs there were people there wearing skinhead wigs There were people with 1950s quiffs. (laughs) And everyone was wearing Doc Martin boots. And they had t-shirts. And all their t-shirts had a picture of a rebel on the front. They had pictures of Che Guevara. They had pictures of James Dean. They had pictures of Jimi Hendrix. And... I'm rubbish on youth culture. (laughs) What other rebel would they have nowadays?
2: Uh,
1: Amy Winehouse? Winehouse?
2: What about Lady Gaga?
1: Lady Gaga? (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else? They had some modern homogenised rebels and (laughs) and everyone yes they were gathered in the main shopping square and as Joel looked around he noticed something strange and remarkable about all these people acting as rebels yes I've hinted at it what was remarkable was how all these people they looked the same they all wore the same sort of correct rebel clothes. They all sort of shouted the same rebel phrases. And they all struck the same rebel poses. But none of the other people noticed. Not a single one. No, no. They were all too busy looking at their reflections in the shop windows. Marvelling at how rebellious they looked. But that wasn't as bad as things got. No, no. Things got worse because one by one, person by person they started to turn around and stop dancing and they looked at Joel because he wasn't dressed as a rebel he just looked rather sweaty and mucky from climbing up and down these hills and he was dressed in very ordinary clothes and soon the people of Smugly Valley started to jeer at Joel and they laughed at him too they surrounded him And they chanted, if you're not going to fit in, you can't be a rebel like the rest of
2: us.
1: (laughs) Joel. Now, he didn't know what to do. He felt rather scared. And he wondered aloud. But if I'm not a rebel, what am I? the other people stood around and they thought of the worst possible thing that they could call him and one of them they came right out with it you're a nonconformist." conformist <laughs> yes that's right all the people dressed as rebels chorus you're a non-conformist. non-conformist non-conformist, non-conformist, and each time they chanted it they became even louder and more jeery Joel suddenly knew what he had to do. He had to pretend to be ashamed. So he slunk off, looking ashamed. But you know what? He had another secret now. He wasn't really ashamed. For he had remembered the true purpose of rebellion Tuesday. It was the day, hundreds of years before, that the people had risen up and demanded justice for themselves from their cruel, greedy rulers. They had demanded clean water and health care and heating and all the things that could enable themselves to lead good lives and help others. But somewhere along the way, they had forgotten to demand the same things for the people in the next valley. Joel wished for the day that smugly people would remember what being a real, proper campaigner for justice was all about. And that's much more about everything but being opposing rebel. But then Joel knew that that would never be easy for the people of Smuggly Valley and the smugglers certainly didn't like doing things that weren't easy. The fact is that being a true outsider usually isn't glamorous. It usually makes you unpopular it's never fashionable and being shunned isn't the worst of it as Joel started to realise people who are outsiders often get thrown down deep holes and forgotten about Joel also wondered about being fashionable because like any human in his heart of hearts he would still have liked to have been popular with everyone and fashionable like them and welcomed for himself and his apparently eccentric habits. But on the other hand, he rather liked his new title of nonconformist. So that's my children's story. And it is especially for the children and younger people in this room. Now, my question for you, children and younger people. How many of you heard the word "nonconformist" before? Put your hand up if you have. Right. So i pick on you then. <laughs> <laughs> nonconformist. And do you know that we're in a nonconformist faith and tradition?:
2: awesome. Yeah
1: <laughs> well, well, it's something I hope. You'll grow up to be very proud about, because we are one of the oldest non-conformist faiths in Britain. Indeed, our newspaper, the Inquirer, is the oldest non-conformist newspaper in the world. The only other one that now claims that it is is the Guardian, but they're wrong. It's us.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: and there is a difference between being a non-conformist and being a rebel. Because being a nonconformist, you learn to think for yourself and you follow what you think is right. <coughs> Sometimes rebellion is just kicking against someone else's ideas, which is quite different. So that sound little flame of nonconformist may ever burn bright in your souls. And there may be times, some of us have done them, me included, when you're surrounded by people who are just going to say, Church, what do you go that for? It's naff. 'Cause I they think they're rebels. And I keep quiet about going to church.
2: <laughs>
1: but that's your little flame of nonconformism. I hope you bear it bright in your souls and hopefully when you're doing some spare time playing today, you might have a little think about what it means to be a nonconformist for you and how you might wish to do that for the rest of your life. How are you staying for the whole thing? Get gets after this. <laughs> <laughs> but you are welcome to stay. More than welcome. And... Oh. Oh, they're off. I she wanted to stay.
2: John, do you take feet? That's good.
1: Well, thank you. If anybody can illustrate it, we'll (laughs) sell it as a book one day. So, to the main part of my address, which, uh, as Michael set us all this challenge this week, the title starts with On the Edge of. And my take on this address is On the Edge of Comfort. So I'm arguing against the easy life. But really, I mean, like the smugglers. who in the real world would argue against having an easy life? What kind of idiot would do that? Well, here's one. Um, as Michael mentioned, I did write this book called Enough, and after writing the book and spending probably the uh, best part of two years doing publicising for it in various ways. I did decide, write enough, enough. I didn't really want to write a follow-up called More Than Enough. So (laughs) I put it away and went on to other projects. But as things have a habit of bubbling away in the back of your head, I realised there was a sort of a chapter that I never wrote, which is kind of burgeoning away. It's still nascent in my head, but it, it... may well turn into another project so I'm I'm slightly workshopping it for you here, Um, so if it's ragged at the edges then uh, sorry about that, Um, but I've increasingly uh, started to take against the idea of convenience Um, in fact I've started to think that convenience is the fifth horseman that we have death, plague famine, pestilence and convenience (laughs) Which might sound a bit strange. I will, uh, during this address, attempt to uh, give you some ideas that might sway you a little. We certainly live in a convenience culture. Where we can live continuously among a convenience food. Brought from many of the convenience stores around us. And actually, convenience has got through to the point where we increasingly don't actually have to think or remember anything. uh, As I found in in the, the lounge Uh, Last night when we were trying to work out where the derivation of possession is nine-tenths of the law came from, uh, I was suddenly surrounded by a sea of smartphones attempting to uh, (laughs) Google the question. (laughs) In fact, we're on the brink of a world uh, where everything we have to know we can download. This is going to get to the point where uh, the techies are calling this world augmented reality which I love that promise, now new, improved reality. Um, With augmented reality, you will, for example, with your camera-equipped smartphone, be able to walk into a room full of strangers. The smartphone will have facial recognition software. It will recognise your face. It will look for you on the social media. It will find you, look up what you've got, compare what you've got with what you've got on your own social media and tell you who your friends are going to be. and who you shouldn't bother getting to know because they're not like you. Um, In fact, there's already a word for this. It's popped up in the New Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It's called Convenience Friends. All the friends, none of the inconvenience of knowing people. Marvellous. This is our convenience world. As Charles G. Mortimer, the quick food pioneer and head of America's General Foods Corporation, once declared... A couple of decades ago, rather rather foresightfully, today convenience is the success factor of just about every type of product and service that is showing growth. But I would argue there is a perilous downside to living a life of constant convenience. And this happens to people at a fundamentally spiritual level. I'll go into this sort of uh, slightly sporadically, but uh, a, fr- a couple of ideas to start with. Convenience, paradoxically, I think, <coughs> creates ingratitude rather than gratitude. We can call this the light switch phenomenon. So here is the example of how it works. Every time you walk into a darkened room and flick on the conveniently sighted light switch, you don't think. Thank heavens for electricity and everybody who invented it and the people who generate it and all the power that exists in the world to create electricity. You don't think, thank heavens for light switches and light bulbs. You don't even notice the switch. Unless something's broken. And then suddenly you notice. You notice the bulb or the switch or anything else, the power cut. And then you growl at it. (coughs) Convenience helps us to take our lives For granted. And likewise, convenience culture makes us growl at the cosmos, even though it is the very thing that creates and sustains us. We live with the implicit assumption that our universe, the divine cosmos, that birthed us, nurtures us, is in fact an inconvenient place. It is not itself beneficent or good. It must be leavened with convenience in order to to make it (laughs) livable. So we thus feel alienated from our mother universe and encouraged to believe that we can enjoy it only if it is mediated by consumer convenience products. We feel that we can only live like the boy in the consumerist bubble. I'll go into that a bit more later. But I think also uh, the promise of convenience pledges that the cosmos can be bent to our will. Clearly, now I'm not going to argue that we all go back to seed drills and, and weaving our own clothes all the time. Um, <laughs> there are many things that we do need healthcare and heating, and such and such. But beyond a certain point, that promise can backfire. For example, we can be encouraged to think that we do not have to change our psyches to fit the cosmos. Instead, we can change the cosmos to suit our psyches. I've explained how augmented reality can change this on the outside by changing reality to make it more convenient. But sort of around us and on our insides, we're going to get a sort of augmented reality too. For example, if you develop some kind of neurotic worry about your body... Perhaps, for example, because we are surrounded by photoshopped images of perfect bodies that make our own look not perfect. Then we can buy a course of cosmetic surgery. How much easier than addressing your neuroses is that? Just one man with a scalpel can make it all go away. Uh, However, uh, I know from many of my researches, I am a medical correspondent for national newspapers, that it doesn't. Which is why plastic surgery uh, operators are so keen to do buy one, get one, freeze, special offers and things like that. Because they know that if they can get you in to have something snipped and tucked, with the belief that it will fix everything, and it doesn't, you'll go back for more. You're on the hedonic treadmill of having yourself externally modified in order to try and change something that could be modified internally, but that wouldn't make anyone a profit. And furthermore, this consumerism starts to alienate ourselves, us from ourselves as well as from the cosmos. We become internally inconvenient to ourselves. Now, ultimately... Perhaps if that actually provided us with with some kind of source of joy, we could say, well, it's a means to an end, and everyone's happy, so that's fine. But I do wonder, ultimately, whose lives this kind of stuff, this imperative for convenience, actually does enrich, improve, or actually make easier? Is the actual promise of convenience delivered in any way? Um... Now, it's uh, my pleasure and privilege at Brighton Unitarian Church to take weddings. It's another one of the... It's it's a bit like being journalism, actually. it's, it's, It's... Journalism is sometimes having a backstage pass into other people's crises. Like being an ambulance man or something like that. And similar with with weddings, I would think you're you're coming into a point of absolute uh, deep emotion and crisis in someone's life. And to help them through that... uh, Have you met my wife? We should be there with them. But quite often, actually, I realise nowadays... The wedding couples themselves aren't really there emotionally. Um, I get so many of them, I say, right, you know, uh, the church is open well, weekdays, you know, between uh, 10 and 4, and I know they're free on this certain days, and can we have a meeting? And they'll say no, and I say, well, aren't you taking a day off at any point to, to organise all those things that need to be done in, a, in a, a wedding, and maybe sit down and talk to each other? No, we haven't got time. <laughs> strangely the, the receptions always get very very well organised but the, the church bit, it's a bit funny now I'm not saying it's their fault in a way And I, I, I think actually they genuinely believe that they don't have time for this kind of thing they live in a world of, often in a world of high intensity economic activity getting and spending in order to buy convenience things that comes first And their real profound inner life comes a rather poor second. Now, sometimes hurry is good. I am a bit of a hurry freak myself in many things. But um, I think one should hurry between milestones. Hurry between waymarks. And then take that time to ponder. But with weddings, quite often it seems to me that these these huge waymarks in their lives are going, going past in a complete blur because it might be inconvenient to think about what they're doing, maybe. I'm not quite sure. Um, But I do suspect that one of their difficulties is due to another great con trick of convenience. Because one of the primary promises of the convenience world is that we will have everything that we want right here, right now. It's the ultimate tantrum stopper. (laughs) Or, in spiritual terms, it's the materialist version of the kingdom the Lord is nigh. But the funny thing is that in order to enjoy the possibility of this instant gratification, we all have to work very hard and very fast to create it. In America, they've now developed um, a sort of software program linked to cameras, which are based on the top of fast food drive throughs. The cameras can take the number plate and if they don't recognise the number plate, they will take a picture of the, the, the demographics of the people in the car, their body sizes and things like that. And due to a huge database of, of previous customers, they will be able to guess with about 92% accuracy what those people are going to order. So that by the time they've got to the window, their food is ready because they've now found that because of the drive-through convenience culture, people will not wait more than three cars. They'll drive off somewhere else. So you can imagine all those people working in the drive through who are working like maniacs to create this instant food for these people who haven't got time to wait for their food because they're working in another industry where they're providing everything instantly for everyone else. So one of the sad things about that is um, when you do research into what uh, creates good food choices, what creates satiety, people feeling full for a long time after they've eaten their meal, the biggest thing is anticipation. For these people aren't anticipating their food. They're just throwing it in their mouths in between other tasks that they haven't got time to wait for. So... Increasingly, there is no later in people's working lives. The demands of working people are now often instant and constant, and in all likelihood, perpetual. So the irony is that in striving to create the instant now, in consumerist terms, people are losing the real now. The eternal now. That moment, the time, the eternity, the abundance that surrounds us. Because cosmic time is infinite and it's free. But commodified time is scarce and it's expensive. And is getting scarcer and more expensive. We live in a society that is rushing for convenience. And because of that, the eternal, the cosmic eternal, that we here revere, is being commercialised, repackaged, and sold back to people as something that they cannot quite afford. Not even to arrange a marriage ceremony. It hardly sounds convenient, and it hardly sounds spiritual either. I think there is also the paradox of electronic connectedness. Um, as Michael has kindly outed me as, as, as a complete weirdo for not having a mobile <laughs> phone. <laughs> you know I'm going to have a hobby horse on this one. But you know, I think the promise initially when people were sold mobile phones was they would be very, very, very convenient for you and they would liberate you and they would liberate your time. Um, the reason why in the year 2000 um, I accidentally trod on my mobile phone... <laughs> was because uh, you know, I, I work in an industry full of early adopters and constant naggers. So I was one of the first people who, instead of having you know, uh, thinking that I was on, on the top end string of the information puppet, realised actually I was on, on the bottom end of the string of the information puppet. And I had the newsroom ringing me up once or twice a day with, can you give us 400 words on this, can you give us 600 words on this? And guess what? They never used them. Um, if, you, if I make people e- email me, they actually have to make the effort of typing rather than just, oh, I've got half an idea, let's get an issue to do that, and if we don't need it, we won't use it. Email, they have to think about it and have to decide whether they really want it. So um, it does actually work for me. But uh, you know, the, the responses I had for I don't have a mobile phone, in about 2000, it was a kind of patronising uh, you know, poke in the ribs um, after that, it became, you know, more just laughing in your face for being a luddite. After that, there was a certain disbelief, and more recently, it became annoyance. How do you think you can get away from that, with that? And you know, and and people really badgering me to get a, a mobile phone, various things like that. Now we've gone back to absolute slack jawed, bug eyed disbelief. How can you do that? It's like walking around without oxygen or something like that. But it was supposed to liberate us. So I am not a complete that I do use computers and email and things like that. But the idea that an abundance of information will liberate you, I think, actually uh, isn't working at the moment. And if we were ever to row back on convenience, then we're going to have to start fighting some of these things. But it does make you look very weird. Um, and also, uh, we become too convenient for others. Uh, etiquette's gone out the window, particularly with, with phones. You can be explaining to somebody uh, what happened you know, when, when you uh, endured a, a terrible uh, relationship, broke up and you're just getting to the entire crux of the thing that, the mean that you actually gleaned out of this through hard work and much reflection and their phone goes, sorry <laughs> we are interruptible and somehow we think that in, amongst all this confusing world of information that we now live that one phone call might be the one thing that makes sense of everything so you'd better take it so um, yes this is why I worry a little about convenience um, also um, let me see I'm going to skip this bit no, I think uh, entertainment as well. You can be entertained anywhere you look now. Which is nice, but constant entertainment, I mean entertainment is uh, another old word for it was diversions. What do they divert us from? Well, very often they divert us from what's going on inside oh. us. The constantly entertained have a more convenient world than they're in a life and also uh, it's, it's in a way more controllable because it's like having your life as a giant Fisher-Price toy where there are only three buttons, green, yellow and red and you can press them and you will get a conveniently uh, appropriate uh, outcome which is why I think many more people are now voting in the X Factor than they are in politics <laughs> It's easy, it's convenient, nothing bad will come of it. But what that does, I think, (coughs) is, yeah, why vote in politics? Why bother? Why make an effort when it might be unsatisfying, inconvenient, just like real life? I'd rather stay in the convenient information bubble. So we get removed from reality. (coughs) There is another way, I think, in which it changes the way we act in the world... Which is about how we behave ecologically. <coughs> what happened to environmentalism? I mean, not, not here, but in the wider world, really. I mean, I was, I was listening to, uh, I think it's 1967, a, a band that's now been rather forgotten called Spirit. So no one forgets the name of their lead guitarist, who was Randy California. LAUGHTER their biggest hit was a song called Fresh Garbage, which I think said, look outside your window, see all the things you didn't quite consume, the world is filled with your fresh garbage. About please don't waste. And Actually, if you go back into that era of time, there was a lot of conscious raising about ecological things. It's been going on ever since. I'm sure many of us in this room have done things to try and, 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 and keep that message going. But I think, actually and particularly since the economic crash, it is increasingly being ignored by people who think they don't have time for ecological things, that there are more pressing, immediate worries, and they've got better things to do which are more convenient. For example, to drive around in the convenient, safe insularity of a whacking great big 4x4, because the world out there is not as convenient as the world in here. So... um, you know, this is—it's so nice to see you know eating these 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 peace shoots and doing all of these things here. Because uh, in Brighton we had a bin strike about a month ago, and yes, we've had an economic crash. But God, you saw everybody's rubbish out in the street, and it is still just things that people buy and throw it away and it's packaging, and it's all that stuff. And this is hippie Brighton, and nobody seems, seemed to have noticed or actually thought that the bin strike might have been a good thing that might have made people reflect on what they were consuming and throwing out. No, it was a bin strike. It was inconvenient. So, yes, we, it, it, with food, convenience, food, what gets thrown away is all those bits that you know people don't quite like to eat. So we get skinless, boneless, chicken breasts and all that, and the rest just goes into landfill. This is hardly, paradoxically, going to be convenient for future generations. As the pioneering American environmentalist David R. Brower once asked, is the minor convenience of allowing the present generation the luxury of doubling its energy consumption every ten years worth the major hazard of exposing the next 20,000 generations to our lethal waste? now so for some that is a very inconvenient truth in fact I think that was a title of a film wasn't it <laughs> that we are burning up the planet but you can tell people this and they can kind of inter- internalise it on the level of being entertained we are burning up the planet I contribute to this global crisis with my pointless consumption I have to change my ways uh, as an individual so that life may be less onerous for others oh my god there's a picture of a minor celebrity wearing an embarrassing outfit. I'll read about that instead. You know, your, your attention is is instantly taken away. Um, also, I think people increasingly think that. Well, it's the old thing about. Yes, I did something about the environment. I watched that film about ecological stuff. <laughs> um, so I'll just quickly run through another few uh, paradoxes of convenience, pain relief. Get a headache, pop a pill again as a medical correspondent i 've seen and written about this several times, and it doesn 't ever quite sort of have any effect in the real world, but one of my hobby horses is painkillers. they sell by the ton there 's about I think the industry is about worth about five hundred million pounds in in Britain, and everywhere you go now, you can buy painkillers, and the packaging on them is amazing. Um, Neurofen, I was reading some of their internal marketing documents and one of their packaging, they said it's aspirational (laughs) this stuff is so good you'll want to have a headache and you'll get one because there is this the phenomenon of rebound headaches is astonishing people get into the habit of popping these pills every time they get a headache If you stop taking them, you get withdrawal symptom. What is that withdrawal symptom? You get a headache, so you take more of these tablets. And that's the convenient way of stopping to have a headache, apparently, is is hook yourself on a drug that can have quite severe side effects in order to uh, deal with the side effects of the drug you're taking. Um, But there is another paradox to the convenience of pain uh, that I learned about last year. It fascinated me because of its implicit spiritual content. Because researchers had been begun to wonder about a statistical quirk that you find amongst heart attack survivors. What they found was that the people who were given painkilling morphine by the ambulance people or something like that, at the time they were having their heart attack, were more likely to die afterwards. And they were more likely to, to have severe damage if they actually survived. The problem wasn't anything to do with the morphine they received, or the care, or the severity of their heart attacks. So, what was going on? Well, the researchers were scratching their heads for years over this. But now people are starting to learn. You know what? Nature doesn't monotask. It doesn't just do one thing. And we tend to arrogantly think, oh, that's what that gene does, or that's what that plant does, or something. It's not. It's part of the cosmos part of the infinite web of connection and it's doing lots of things and everything is doing things to it. But rather arrogantly, we like to forget that because it makes life a bit complex. So what is pain doing apart from making us go ouch? Well we're learning that it actually functions to marshal the body's resources. It sparks the body to create its own cell repairing substances. And it attracts them to the point where the self-repair is needed and if you stop the pain you stop the repair system working indeed it might be that that's the original point of that stimulus and it's only later as sentient beings we learnt to say ouch about it and pain became useful to us so, but you know this um, mechanism I think isn't just physical I think it's also about the pain in our spiritual lives and in our psyches Now, thanks to uh, an American book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is known as the Psychologist's Bible, we're getting many more forms of describing spiritual pain and emotional pain and distress. Uh, There's a new book. Number five come out, which I think is 600, no, is it 6,000? 6, 6,000 pages long. Uh, DSM 1, which came out in the 1960s, was 70 pages long. So it grows. Now, some of the new uh, ways of describing ourselves as emotionally or spiritually ill uh, include narcissistic personality disorder, internet addiction, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder which is a long and polite word for saying tantrum. (laughs) And a new condition to describe natural grief, such as mourning the loss of a loved one, which is called major depressive disorder. So, why? Well, I think it's actually about the fact that being human is inconvenient. Having troublesome emotions is inconvenient but not as inconvenient as other people's troublesome emotions. So we medicalize them, we medicate them. And this trend is snowballing. But I would argue that these crisis points can also be seen as vital for the spiritual journey. <clears throat> they might feel like we're on the ragged edge, on the edge of comfort. But it does not mean that they're not essential, absolutely essential. And when we ignore our spiritual selves, we lose that vital dimension of our human potential. We do not simply constrain ourselves to being less than we might be. But we smother one of our most vital resources of self-healing. But you can always take antidepressants for that. Um, now, I really, I, part of me was wanting to go on an arc here of saying well, you know, pain's good, we ought to put up with it. And then I'm thinking, that's a bit excessive, really. But uh, I think it was uh, lunch or dinner. One of the places I quickly learned is the, one of the best places of learning at summer school. I was in a conversation, and I learned how uh, actually some Muslim families have difficulty with the NHS's concept of palliative care of getting rid of all pain on the care pathway, as it's called, because they do believe that pain is about spiritual life and about spiritual suffering. Um, not something I would advocate myself, but I completely and utterly respect that idea, and I can see how that can work. So you know, I think we need to revisit that rather old uh, rhyming cliche, no pain, no gain, in the ways that are most appropriate to us. Um, so I think just to sum up that rather long block of greed I've just been through I think spiritually the fact is that spirituality is not convenient but inconvenience will take you to the heart of yourself and to the heart of your troubled self and it will take you to the place where all your toughest questions lie the ultimate inconvenience is of course that we are all born to die and that's the one that we try to escape so much quite often by being entertained and I do think our bodies and our minds are built to thrive on the challenge of inconvenience perhaps there's anybody who's going to go wild water swimming we'll find out (laughs) later today without exertion without challenge in our minds. I think we bloat and we wither. And at that point, I'd like you to find someone to talk to who you don't normally talk to or haven't shared these experiences. And we'll have about five minutes to just take it in terms. If you can talk about maybe an inconvenience you've suffered, but actually you've enjoyed it in a way, because... It has been a profound inconvenience. Something that's been a waymark in your life that you might not have chosen, but in retrospect, you feel thankful for. Can you do the timing on that? One? Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: saying, if you haven't swapped over, please consider doing that now. Oh, and if you've got a mobile phone on you, please switch it off.
1: to me like you were having a lot of things to share there about Mitch I'm hugely relieved (laughs) (laughs) rather than just what's he on about so yes just to bring us back with a quote from Martin Luther King the ultimate measure of a man or shall we say person or woman is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience (coughs) but where they stand at times of challenge and controversy. Now, what do we do about this all? Just remember, I'm a Unitarian, so I come not bearing answers. Just... (laughs) More problems and some thorny questions. Because Unitarianism, I believe, is among the most inconvenient of all spiritual traditions. It is demanding in an apparently undemanding way. Because um, it's quite easy to, to sort of read one of those what Unitarians believe and say, yep, yeah, that's all okay, you know, uh, no creed, welcoming everyone, apparently not having a god, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I do, um, when I'm taking weddings uh, as, as sort of shorthand, I do that chalice lighting thing and I say, I like this chalice in remembrance of all those who gave their lives... In defense of free thought, free speech, free faith, so that this couple can have the wedding they have today. And that's, in a nutshell, kind of what I give them with Unitarianism. Because uh, it is a great point of engagement for the local community to so come into this uh, funny Greek looking building that they, I often don't even think, is a church anymore and find that there's people doing stuff in there that they don't understand. And I'm sure we've all had that massive challenge of uh, digging the eternal hole, which is trying to explain Unitarianism to someone briefly. So that's what I give them. And I give them it in a way because it's, it's OK, it's safe, it's all right. Who can argue with that? But part of me thinks this is wrong. I'm making Unitarianism convenient. I'm mis-selling under the Trades Descriptions Act. <clears throat> because... Unitarianism takes us to the edge of things, to the edge of the convenient, to the ragged edges of ourselves and with our relationship with the ineffable. And what it takes us over into is a very difficult road map. Now, if we Unitarians were to create a, and sell an in-car satellite navigation system... It would not be popular.
2: <laughs>
1: it would no doubt attract numerous complaints. Unitarian Satnav would take you to places where the electronic map indicated that there should be bridges. But when you get there, there may not be a bridge. Likewise, Unitarian Satnav would take you to junctions where there seem to be no roads going onwards. And that might be infuriating if you thought that Unitarian Satnav was a convenience item. (laughs) But of course, ours is a mystical road map, a Satnav of the soul. The map is for the journey of your ever growing spiritual conscience. And often, when you get there, the roads have not been built yet, nor the bridges. The Unitarian map is your own individual journey for you to work out. The bridges and roads may only appear when you get there, or or they may only appear when you've gone over them, or when you have to travel them. So it's going to be a bumpy ride, particularly on the unmade Unitarian road of your soul. For in Unitarianism, we don't have those big convenient road signs like the huge blue ones you see on motorways. The fact that we don't have creeds or easy commandments doesn't mean it's convenient. It means that the path is yours and yours only. So there we are with Unitarian spirituality. Good luck, you have to persevere on your own. <laughs> And that perseverance will, I am sure, take you to the difficult places. To the places that are deep. To the places that can be very dark. That can be be beset by doubts and haunted by the ghosts of your unwanted inner self. But when you've got yourself there, when you've got yourself to those inconvenient places which are shunned by our society, that's where Unitarianism can offer you support and guiding wisdom in the shape of tales from fellow travellers, fellow travellers in this room, in this summer school, in our writings, in the literatures that we revere, everything that goes back to those first Neolithic farmers who looked at the sky and wondered... The ultimate journey, it's for you, and you're on your own, but with friends. It's inconvenient, but it's not impossible. And that is the nature of our spiritual journey. It is the kind of arduous trek that has, since the dawn of civilization, inspired people to make physical journeys, pilgrimages that embody their inner progress. See the synergy between me and the wife. It's a a, a (laughs) seamless, seamless message there. For pilgrimage is indeed the difference between climbing a rocky mountain on your knees or going by cable car. And only one, of course, is convenient. Now here's another tough challenge of non-convenience. I shall bring you as we come near to our close. I talked earlier about the light switch phenomenon of convenience. Well, I think the fact that their the true spiritual gratitude, not just for light switches, bulbs and electricity, is convenience-free gratitude for the cosmos. For I believe that is true spiritual gratitude. Being grateful for everything that happens in your lives. Everything. And How inconvenient is that? But we have to try. Because the cosmic force that brings us the rainbow, the spring, the lambs, gambling in the fields, is the same energy, interconnected, unpickable, from the tsunami, from the earthquake, from the plague, from the disease. Everything brings us everything. And we can't be like those picky children who don't want the peas touching the potato. Spiritually, it's all one. And if we, are, if we are to nurture our gratitude for what nurtures us, then we have to be grateful for everything. And that is deeply, deeply, deeply inconvenient. So I think um, for uh, when we... Uh, if you'd like to come back later in the afternoon and talk about some questions, one of the things I'd like you to ask yourselves maybe, is what can you do to make your life more inconvenient? What will help you? And maybe, because I think we are a society in shunning things that are actually real to us, you may find that actually those points of your most inconvenience might be the ones that can take you somewhere. It can unstick you, I think, to think: what's the worst thing that could happen to me? Where does my fear lie? Why? What's going on there? And I can only say that I, I was grateful to go on the internet and have a look around, because just to make sure that I'm not the only idiot who's arguing against convenience. And in fact, somebody in America has set up www.inconvenienceyourself.com. And, uh, hooray for them! It's made my job easier. <laughs> um, and basically what they're saying is uh, many of our actions seem to say that we think we are more significant for th- than the next person. That our lives and schedules are more important than someone else's. We often inconvenience other people to make our lives easier. And don't give a thought to the impact of our actions on others. So that from our viewpoint on the other side of the Atlantic is, is one of the worst things we can do. I think we can do many other worst things, but clearly the breakdown of politeness and things like that maybe is somewhere in that idea that inconvenience makes you uh, a bit too egotistical for anybody else's good. Um, how can we, in our daily lives, embrace the inconvenient? Um, I think a lot of it is simply down to adopting mindfulness in our daily practices being ecological, cutting waste, reducing fuel use, and doing all those other inconveniences that might help people in the developing world not wake up tomorrow and find that their fields have turned to dust or that our children or their children will find that their fields have turned to dust. So I think there's a wonderful lesson from the the kitchens. I speak as an allotment holder. Um, (laughs) Grow your own food as little as much as you are able... It is inconvenient, particularly when it's got slug holes in it and things like that. <laughs> but I think it demands a much deeper relationship than we have with ready meals. Every calorie of your home-nurtured stuff is precious. You meet it out carefully, you eat it slowly, and you don't throw it away unused. <laughs> <laughs> so, such are the ways of inconvenience. Um, I'm sure you have your own ideas on it. I hope you'll cogitate on it in three moments during the day and come back and we can talk about how to make the world a more inconvenient place, and I'd leave you with two two things. one is, of course, everything in Unitarianism has been said already, so I refer you to hymn number fifty nine of the green book, Prayer for Strength," which I do love not, not, not simply because it 's a cracking tune, but uh, the lines "Not forever in green pastures do we wish do, I, do we ask our way to be, but by steep and ragged pathways?" Would we strive to climb to thee? See, that's why we have hymns. I could have just done that. (laughs) Saved you a lot of time. Um, And I leave you with the words of the Nigerian author and educationist, Dr. Tai Solarin Life, if it is going to be abundant, must have plenty of hills and vales. It must have plenty of sunshine and rough weather. It must be rich in obfuscation and perspicacity. It must be packed with days of danger and apprehension. May your roads be rough. When I say this, I do not wish to curse you. I'm only wishing to you what I wish myself every day. Thank you.